Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. Thank you for having us this morning. Uh, it's, uh, God, what a great location you have for a day uh, listening to some fantastic information and uh, incredible speakers on the list during the day, so a lot to learn. Um, can I ask, can we just get an idea of, uh, of who's here today? How many people are starting out and, and here to find out about how to get going? So a few there. And established um, freelancers? So, great. So, look, I think we're, we're going to cover a lot of inf interesting information in our discussion with our speakers this morning, and we'll give you time uh, towards the end for questions as well. So, um, so there'll be time for that. Uh, <coughs> so, uh, can I now introduce uh, Tiana Templeman, Andrew McMillan, and Matt Condon. Uh, I'll give you a little bit about, it, about them. Tiana is a freelance journalist travel writer. She's the author of the book Absolutely Faking It, which was reprinted numerous times and translated for overseas publications. A freelance journalist, a radio presenter, a travel writer, uh, keeps a travel blog, sorry, blog called Good To Go. Uh, professional trainer, tutors journalism students, media trainer at the Queensland Writers' Centre, specialist destination lecturer for celebrity cruises. I think is very impressive, uh, has written public for publications like Qantas Airways, Tourism NT, a broad range of travel and industry magazines, so huge cross-section. She's also currently doing a PhD in the future of freelance journalism, so we'll be very interested to uh, be able to come to you on some of that. Andrew McMillan, thanks for joining us today. Andrew's a freelance journalist, author, your first, an author, so you've done your first book, Talking Smack, Honest Conversations About Drugs. So interesting sort of subjects that you go into. Um, that one was published by University of Queensland Press last year. You've started your new book now. He hosts a podcast about writing, uh, writing culture called Penmanship, so, which features in-depth interviews with Australian writers. And uh, he's a music writer, long-form writer, published in a range of mainstream media, including The Guardian, The Australian, Q Weekend, BuzzFeed, Rolling Stone. So you, you've kind of travelled across a, a number of sort of subjects and areas as well, haven't you? But started out in music. Uh, and Mot Matthew Condon. Uh, so you may know of Matt. Uh, through his books, um, Three Crooked, Three sorry, Three Crooked Kings was the first of it, the series about uh, the uh, biography of uh, Queensland Police Commissioner, former Poli Queensland Police Commissioner Terry Lewis, and uh, and everything that surrounded that. Um, followed by part two, and about to be followed by part three. So uh, that's about to go uh, is going to the press today, Matt. Yesterday. Yesterday. So he's, he's tired and he's turned up. <laughs> this is a good time to ask him questions. Um, Matt, you've, uh, you've started out at the Gold Coast as a cadet journalist um, and, you know, started with a traditional career as a journalist, went to freelance writing, also as an author, um, and you're back writing for the Courier Mail now, back as a staff journo. So for you, what was it that led to freelancing and, and how did you make that transition? Well, I, um, I, I thought I would um, write books and they'd sell a million copies and, and then I could just um, dabble in journalism. And uh, I wrote those books and I'm still in journalism. So um, that idea didn't quite pan out. Uh, it was to give me more time to do the books. But then again, at that point, I was single. Um, and uh, 
when, when my freelancing came to an end, it was when my wife told me that we were pregnant with our first child. So my immediate instinct was, uh, I'm not going to make this. If, um, if I'm freelancing, I'll have to go back to real full-time work. And uh, so it was, an, it was a financial imperative, really. Have you, have you taken things, you know, what did freelancing give you? Have you taken things back with you, um, you know, sort of back into full-time full work, staff work? Yeah, that's a great question because, um, you know, it is, it is a tough existence to freelance and I'm sure, you know, Andrew can attest to that as well. And you have to, be, you have, to have your wits about you. You have to be fastidiously organised and you have to make constant contacts and you have to pitch perfectly. So that's a lot to juggle, um, and, um, and um, a lot of that is immediately taken away with full-time work. Uh, but it did toughen me up, there's no question, in terms of being, being rational economically in terms of income and, and organising that. And um, yeah, I think it, it sharpened the pencil in, in many, many, many ways um, for my career. Andrew, I know we had a chat as well and we talked about when you uh, went over to freelancing, blended into freelancing, so you left a web design job, um, decided to try a hand at something that you love doing. But how, how much, you know, how much of that was, how, how much of an impact is it on your self-confidence? How hard is it making that transition? It's really hard. Can you hear me? Is this on? Yes, it's a really hard job and any, anyone who tells you otherwise, anyone who says freelancing is easy and simple is either lying or insane because it, it, even today, like I've been doing this for six years and if I don't have work assigned, if I have go, you know, a few weeks without an editor saying yes to a story, I start to doubt myself and my confidence. So that, that constant desire to be uh, published and have work assigned, like that doesn't go away no matter how long you keep doing it. So... It's a, a, lot, a lot of it's about persistence and not giving up. Like I was saying to you yesterday on the phone, the only reason that I'm still a freelance journalist is because I didn't quit. And there were many, many opportunities along the way where it got really hard and I could have thrown in the towel and said, you know what, fuck this, I'm going to get a, you know, a proper nine-to-five job. But ultimately, the, the work itself is the reward. So I've stuck with it and to this day I love it. How do you tackle that self-confidence that, you know, when you've taken a couple of hits... Well, if it's just an internal monologue, that's when it becomes difficult, but it's a real boon to my career from the very early days is that I've had a mentor who read my writing when I was just a completely unknown, unpublished writer. He found my blog and said, you have some potential, I'd like to help you achieve your goals. And this is a guy who's a local business owner, a local entrepreneur, not a journalist, not any kind of um, notoriety in publishing, but he just uh, he enjoys helping people and mentoring people so with him we set up a system where I would report to him at the end of each week what I'd done that week what had worked what hadn't how I was feeling emotionally how my performance could be improved for next week so that's that was a really powerful simple system that we put in place early and which I was still following every Friday afternoon now six years later where rather than um, being hypercritical of myself I'm just putting it all down on the page and then he can objectively sit back and say, you know, just make a little tweak here or don't be so hard on yourself here. So if it was just me out there at the coalface trying to make a living, I'm dead certain I would have quit years ago. But with that external feedback from my mentor, he's kept me on track and kept me encouraged when I've been feeling low. 
Tiana, you had a similar story. You were uh, were in um, tra corporate training. Corporate training, yeah. And had a went similar thing. Decided to sort of go with your passions. Yes, I did, and and I guess I took a bit of a different approach in that when I finished the manuscript for the travel memoir, absolutely faking it in about two thousand and four. I decided I still wanted to keep writing about travel, but that book was a once in a lifetime story. So I thought, well, you know, I've written eighty five thousand words. How hard can it be to write a thousand? Um, and I now realise, with a bit more experience, writing a long form book like that is nothing like writing travel articles. But at the time, I thought, well, I'm going to give it shot writing for uh, newspapers and magazines and pitching these these travel stories and I guess like Matt was talking about and because all I ever read was travel magazines and travel sections in the newspapers you know my hit rate was quite good when I started pitching the very first story I actually got was a big feature in the weekend Australian and I was absolutely terrified um, but it all worked out okay and, and it sort of grew from there. But I was still doing that when I was working as a corporate trainer at KPMG. So I was working initially four days a week and doing the freelancing on the side. And then as the freelancing grew, um, I started to drop back my hours at, at KPMG until I was only doing um, two days a week. Um, and it was quite good, I guess, because it enabled me to sort of get my foot in the door and get build up those contacts that Matt was talking about that are so important um, and also have a little bit of financial security um, behind me. Um, and then it, I think I've been doing that for about... I've officially been freelancing full-time since 2009, but probably from a working hours perspective, I've probably been freelancing probably since about 2007 because I was still... I was working about 70-hour weeks um, by, the, by the end of it, still trying to juggle this corporate job and the corporate training, which I loved, and that was the other part of the reason I was reluctant to, to, to give that aspect up. But, uh, and so then I, um, you know, officially left in 2009, was probably freelancing full-time, probably from about 2007. And it takes time to build up, doesn't it, for all of you? Yeah, it, it, it takes does. time to build up that market when you, uh, when you begin. How important, uh, I know you've all mentioned, you've all hit on it, pitching. How, you know, what are the important keys? What are the pieces of really important advice you would hand out to people on pitching? I think for me, um, the, the secret to success that I've really experienced, and especially early in my career, since I know some of you are, are sort of just getting started, being really, really familiar with the publications that you're pitching to, and that's what happened to me with The Australian. I think probably at that early stage in my career, I probably should have been aiming a little bit lower, but it was just because I knew the publication so well that the first time I pitched, it hit the right spot. Uh, and that's a really... That's a really um, a really helpful thing. So read the publications you're pitching for. Um, the other things are um, being really persistent. So as uh, an experienced freelancer, I know that I'm almost certainly going to have to follow up my, my pitches, that an editor probably won't get back to me the first time or even maybe the second time. But as a new, a new person starting out, um, it can be really discouraging and you think, oh, my pitches were no good and people didn't like them and they were terrible. It's probably just because the editor's busy and they haven't, um, you know had time to look at them and the following up often gets you that um, that success that perhaps you, you wouldn't have got if you just sort of shied away after the first rejection, I guess, and, and not followed up. So that's something, those two things are, I think, really important. What do you guys what, think? Yeah, what's a good way to follow up, Matt? What would you say? Um, well, let me first say um, the, the reality is, even though the media is apparently shrinking, 
Um, the reality is magazines, for example, like Q Weekend that I work on, they need to be fed 30, mm. 40, 50,000 words a week. Now, I remember when I was editor, uh, you had to plan weeks ahead, sometimes months, and it was constantly putting this copy through. When a freelancer like, for example, Andrew came along, um, there were a couple of things that he did that made him, in, to my mind, instantly successful. And we, we took uh, um, some pieces from Andrew. He came in with, I remember one day, I think you came in with a list of about 20 ideas. Not one or two, but 20. I've had ideas pitched to me by people saying, look, um, I would like to write a great story on the Bean Lee Fair. Uh, that would ha have absolutely no place in Kiwikend whatsoever. By the time they've reported on it and we publish it, even if we would consider it, it happened a month before, because our lead time is, is two weeks. So you must study the magazine very carefully. Andrew's ideas were all suited for the style of magazine that Q Weekend was. Um, so that was a great start. And he understood our demographic, and I didn't need to explain that to him because he got it. And also he was very good with deadline. And, and editors, and I hear the current editor of Q Weekend, every month when a piece is coming in from a freelancer and the piece is late, um, quite often that piece will be discarded for another piece, because it's because of the bustle to keep feeding the magazine. If you're late, forget about it. Um, editors remember that, and they will pass you over. And get your piece in a day early, rather than on the day. And uh, that will um, put you in huge stead with the editor of the day. So, um, and they will reconsider you immediately for another piece, because everything worked, everything was smooth. They didn't have any problems, they didn't have to explain anything. The piece is good, it's gone to the sub-editor. Yep. Now let's move on to really next week. It's not about you, is it? It's mm. about they have exactly. all these other considerations going on. And exactly. If, that's, if that piece is there and it's ready, you know... It's a thrashing machine, really, it really yep. is. And they've got no time to sit down and explain journalism to you and how a feature should be written. Um, that is just, you know, so far in the background. Yep. Just have a polished product, a great idea, get it in on time, and you'll get more work. Andrew, how do you... How do you find that information? How do you know? Um, how do you work out this is what this magazine needs? Or can you find? Do you find them and speak to somebody there? Do you? How do no, you find it's it? It's always out? email, and I've tried as much as possible. I've tried to get pitching down to a science over the years. So a few years ago, I decided to only pitch new ideas on Wednesday because that's the middle of the week when editors arrive at the desk on Monday. They have meetings on what's coming for that week, and they're going through their inbox, and that's a bit of a busy day. Friday is usually a deadline day where everything's coming in and they're shaping the magazine. So Wednesday, I figured, was a good middle of the road, like maybe a bit of a, a breather before the final deadline. I don't know, maybe Matt can confirm or deny this. And on, <laughs> on following up, I do that once a week and I make a note in my schedule. If I don't hear back, follow up next week. Like, it's like I track all my pictures in a spreadsheet and I colour code it. Like green means it was approved and I have the word count and the amount of money they're going to pay me, and red is for rejected and a reason why it was rejected. Yellow means the editor hasn't got back to me yet. And I can go back to like 2009 and see my entire history of pitching. And as well as that, at the bottom of that spreadsheet, I've got like several hundred ideas that I've developed over the years. And if I scroll all the way to the bottom, 
the ideas are fucking terrible. And I'm just embarrassed to read what I bought good pictures at the time. So that's a good reminder, because one would hope that your ideas, the ideas you're pitching get better over time. And I can definitely confirm that by scrolling to the bottom of that spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. You could be a freelance accountant as well, by the sounds of it. I hate accounting, I hate numbers. But sometimes they're good and you can reuse them as well, because I do something similar, but it's done without looking pop-up reminders. And, um, and it's sort of... Because for me, a lot of... Because I write predominantly about tra- travel, which is the thing, you know, my, one of my great passions. But, you know, a lot of the stories are... They'll have, like, a most romantic island story for Valentine's Day. So tying... Um, stories to sort of themes or what's coming up and sometimes I'll look through my past pictures and it's like oh I pitched that two years ago and no one picked it up I might give that another shot and often someone will take it so it's sort of like you know it saves you extra work as well having that really organised approach like Andrew does. But on the pitching itself just to finish up in the I'm like really specific about it in the subject line I have story pitch colon intended title or subject of the article and the pitch itself is hi editor's name here's a new pitch for your consideration. And then it's like a few paragraphs on the idea, who I intend to talk to, and just to give a sense of where the story could go or a narrative arc, just something that could pique an editor's interest to say, you know what, that sounds interesting, let's do it. So I would say for a pitch, uh, you just want to really tell the story in a couple of lines, don't you? You want to tell the story, you want to want them to know why it's going to work for their publication or uh, you know, their, their program. And, um, and, and why it matters. Is that, would, you know, just briefly, how would you... Yeah, I mean, um, I'll what give you, you an actual example um, of a, an idea I had a, a week, two weeks ago, and I saw on the television news on a Sunday night that there was still drama involving the construction of um, a mosque uh, uh, in, at Karumbat on the Gold Coast. I know this issue's been going on for about 18 months to two years, but I thought, why has nobody done a full-length 4,000-word feature on this because it is a microcosm of everything that is problematic in uh, Australia today in in terms of um, religion and Muslims. And so why don't we do a big, fantastic feature, go and speak to everybody on both sides of the argument, spend some time on the Gold Coast, hang out, look at the site where the mosque is proposed and bring this story to the readers of Queensland. That's a a simple pitch. It's as simple as that. But uh, it's a complex complex story to, Mm. to achieve... But a pitch like that, you know, it has heft, it has a number of narrative threads that will carry it through. It has conflict as well, there's two sides to the story. Exactly. So, um, but other stories don't have to be so complex. I was at a writers' festival um, in Ayr in far north Queensland recently, and I met this this girl, um, this local girl, who was quite peculiar. She's the size of a four year old, oh, sorry, a um, grade four student, little 10-year-old, but she's, she was actually 17. She had makeup, and there was something about her that caught my attention. So I asked around about this girl, and she, had a, uh, um, she has a tumour on her pituitary gland that stopped her growing when she was 10. Uh, and now she's sort of fighting for her life, but raising money for children with cancer, and that's her whole dedication in life. And I thought, that's a fantastic cover story for Q Weekend. Here's this, you know, soldier, this child soldier with cancer fighting for other children. And as, as, it, as it stood, she lives on a cane farm uh, on the Burdekin River. And uh, we went up there last week and spent the day with her. And um, 
you know, that's a positive story. It's about, it's about what people are achieving. It doesn't have to have conflict all the time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, variations. But that was just by, me, by bumping into this person. I um, think early, one of the things I was first told when I thought we started out in journalism was, oh, how do you know a story? And I, somebody said to me, when you think, oh, really? You, you know, that's a story. And I, that's mm. pretty much stayed true for me as a producer as well. I think, yeah, that's really that's piqued my interest. Mm. What about staying open to, um, to ideas, Andrew, to other options in the market? So you primarily started out as a, a music writer, but you've moved into all sorts of areas, podcasting, you know, is it important to, you know, develop a diversity of, of outlets and platforms? Yeah, I started in music journalism as a freelancer and did that for the first couple of years, but by the end of that period, it had had the opposite effect on my life, where now I was writing about music full-time, I had very little time to actually listen to things that I wanted to. It was always this album's got to be reviewed, I've got to interview that artist tomorrow, I need to get my head full of their music and develop some questions for them. So I was constantly thinking about music. And at the time, my work-life balance was totally fucked. I was working like seven days a week around the clock, like get up, roll out of bed, go to my computer, barely move until I went to bed. Like, and I just started a new relationship at that time and my, my girlfriend at the time said, you know, it's either me or work basically. And that was kind of the wake-up call. Oh, I might actually need to change my, my habits here. And she's now my wife. We got married two weeks ago, so she's very smart. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, yeah, diversifying. So from that point, I was like, I can't keep writing about music and love music. So I had to um, diversify into looking at technology and video games, and that led me into mental health and education and all sorts of different paths that I never would have um, expected to start writing. Because at the time, I really wanted to be a full-time music journalist because I thought that would be awesome. But it turns out... It was for a time, and then it stopped being awesome. So I had to find other ways. But yeah, the podcast, for example, Matt's been a guest on it. I've had several high-quality interviews. He was one of them. I hope. High-quality Matt. <laughs> and with that, it's not a business proposition at all. It's a really selfish thing where I just wanted to sit down with my favourite Australian writers, people who earn a living from working with words, and just interview them about their lives and their crafts. But not only um, doing it face-to-face, -face, but recording it and sharing it with around the world and it's only been going for a few months now but I could look at the statistics and it's been downloaded in like Pakistan and Ireland and New Zealand and uh, <laughs> so it's it's a really selfish thing that I wanted to do to speak to my favorite writers and also improve my public speaking skills as well but that may turn into a business opportunity down the track if any podcast advertisers are here in the audience come and talk to me I'll <laughs> and one thing does lead to another, doesn't it? You, you never know what's going to lead to the next big thing for you. Um, Tiana, you had a similar experience, you, but you sort of had some good experiences with finding niches that hadn't been covered off, like HTML. That's right. So I sort of started off um, when I actually started running um, writing courses for Queensland Writers' Centre um, while I was still working at KPMG. So, and part of the reason I did that was, I guess, talking about identifying a, a gap in the marketplace that there was... When I'd been sort of wanting to have a go at freelancing, I found there was no, no courses or anything I could really do. Um, and so I started off doing entry-level courses for them. Um, and I found it was something I really enjoyed. And, I mean, it was, you know, even though I had fun at KPMG, it was a lot more fun sort of combining my, my love of um, teaching with writing, you know, two things I really enjoyed. So that sort of developed. Um, 
And that sort of started to grow. And it's, I guess, when you're freelancing as well or developing those niches, you, um, when you get known for doing something, one success leads to another. So then I would actually get other organisations contacting me and saying, would you come and do this workshop for us? So that sort of grew. And um, the thing that, that was great about that for me, especially as I at that point was starting to think seriously about making freelancing a career, it provided me a sort of a more regular income, which was great because freelancing can be a bit up and down sometimes. Um, and then from there, um, I did other things. Um, I was doing some um, work with brands and organisation, creating content for organisations like um, um, Queensland Tourism for their website um, and getting paid to do that. And then it would have been about 2009, 2010, I was working for Nine MSN and a new editor um, started and actually asked the freelancers uh, that he wanted them to start do, doing basic coding for the story so they could just be uploaded onto the website. Um, and while everyone was either A, throwing up their hands and stamping their feet and saying, I'm not going to do that, I'm a writer, not a coder, um, or saying, I have no idea how to do this. Um, I also didn't really know how to do this, but I thought, well, if he's asking for it, then I think other people will probably start asking for it too. And so I taught myself how to code. Um, and then that led to more work as well. So the work that I do now for um, online publications like Qantas Travel Insider um, and the, the, a lot of the work I do for Cruise Critic um, is because I can actually um, code and word gets around about that sort of stuff and I guess that leads to more work again. So it's sort of one thing builds on another and it's sort of only um, even when I was knew I was going to be coming to, to speak here today and I was chatting to Cathy and sort of like, well, how did your career develop? And I thought, gosh, I don't really know. I'll have to think about it. And then when I looked back, I sort of thought, oh, it did actually happen. Um, there was a bit of a structure to it, but at the time it didn't, didn't yeah. seem that way. But I think there was method in that madness and it did all come, come together for a reason, I hope. It's um, it, it, even more so at the moment, well, not just at the moment, but the current, um, the way media is going at the moment, it's just changing so rapidly, isn't it? You know, we're just kind of get, getting one. I know I've had the experience where I've just got, kind of gotten my ha a handle on one technology and basically it's gone and we're on to the next one. So, you know, that's remaining open and, and being open mm. and learning new things is really critical at, right now. And, and we know that new op opportunities are opening up, new places for journalism yeah. and for writing and um, material. Any standout, really interesting um, sort of bits of work that have come your way, Matt? Uh, yes. Um, we discussed this last night. When I was freelancing in Sydney, um, uh, I got asked by a, uh, a man, a Sydney, uh, well, gangster's kind way to put it, um, <laughs> to write a ch bedtime story for his children just for his children, with his children in the story. And um, I thought, well, it's work, and the money was pretty good, so <laughs> I went out to his outrageous... I thought of of different, you know, storylines you could have come Yeah, up that's with. right. So I went out to his gigantic marbled McMansion in Western <laughs> Sydney and uh, met his wife, who looked exactly like one of the wives on The Sopranos. <laughs> and um, unfortunately, his children were sort of pretty uninteresting, but... Um, um, his marriage, ultimately I sort of got out of that job because um, the marriage fell apart and um, I'm not sure whether that man's alive or dead. But, uh, <laughs> um, and, you know, there is a, there is a current um, serving inmate in, um, in, in prison in Brisbane who um, has um, 
attempted to um, employ my skills uh, for certain documents and things, but I won't go into that. But these are sort of darker side of, uh, of, of the writing life another. where, um, you know, um, polished writing is necessary in all walks of life. Yep. Did yeah, you, and so there's unexpected things that come up, aren't there? Did you, you invoice the gangster or did you take cash? <laughs> I would, I'm not going to comment about that, Andrew. <laughs> um, uh, it's not on my spreadsheet, let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Andrew? Any uh, surprising work that has come your way over the years? Yeah, I did some uh, copywriting for Red Bull a couple of years ago, maybe last year, where that was just... So Red Bull was the client. This German ad agency approached me and said, we're working for Red Bull. They want to do these like, long-form interactive feature stories. Can you tell us what your rates are? And because it's an advertising agency, I charged them through the arse, and they paid it, which is brilliant. So this, this one job for Red Bull paid like 20 grand, which is awesome. But the year wow. before that, I um, ghost-wrote a chapter for William Shatner's biography. One <laughs> chapter. So you can kind of gather how disjointed that writing process was that <laughs> they hired an Australian freelancer to write one chapter in this William Shatner book. Across the world. And that one chapter paid about as much as my first book advance here in Australia. So. Oh, that's fantastic. Tiana, anything that stands out for you? Um, probably something that happened to me recently was I was um, on a ship as a specialist destination lecturer for celebrity cruises, which is fine. I've done it a few times before. But um, when you're actually on as a destination lecturer, even though they know I'm a professional travel journalist and that sort of thing, it's a totally different agency in the company that looks after the, the speaker bookings than they've got, like, an entertainment agency. So the fact I'm a travel journalist just sort of goes completely under the, the radar. It just gets missed, um, which is normally fine. But what happened on this occasion is they actually put me in... Um, they'd overbooked the ship, and so I got put in crew quarters. Um, and now the thing with crew quarters is I didn't actually mind being in crew quarters. It was actually... They gave me one of the nicer refurbished cabins. It was fine. I don't need, need a luxury suite. But as a travel journalist, there is a whole lot of stuff you hear in the crew area that is, you know... Put it this way, it's very lucky I signed a confidentiality agreement <laughs> because, boy, I, I have got some stories to tell. <laughs> what about mentoring? How You've all sort of touched on mentoring. How important is that? Either being a mentor and having a mentor. Matt? Um, well, there are two, two ways to go about uh, mentorships. One is, uh, for example, when I was a younger journalist, I really admired certain specific journalist work. For example, Evan Witten, John Hamilton. So anything they wrote, I studied it very carefully to see how they structured it, why that worked for me. And um, So you can be a distant mentor by, by simply swatting very hard on, on writing that appeals to you and that you would like to head, the direction you'd like to head in. And, and I've had, been lucky enough to have two mentors for my book, the book side of my life, which feeds into my journalism anyway, and that was um, the Australian novelist Georgia Savage and um, Frank Morehouse. And Morehouse has been wonderful because he was a journalist, trained journalist as well. And I'll tell you the type of journalist Frank was, and it, it's a great story that when he, when he was a young cadet on the Daily Telegraph, the editor called him in and ordered him out to go to the Manly um, Pier because there, were, there was talk that the pier, the pylons were sinking. And so out went young Morehouse, and he came back into the office a few hours later, and he, his clothes were soaked. 
And the, the editor said, Morehouse, what the hell have you been doing? And he said, well, I, I went into the water to dive and check the piers from, because I wanted to see it with my own eyes. So I went in just to check the piers. And um, that's Morehouse. You know, he has to see, when he's writing about something, he has to see it. Like, I hate doing journalism on the phone. I, I have to be in front of another human being or a situation, see it and feel it, and smell it with my, my senses. So Morehouse has taught me an enormous amount, not, not just about um, journalism, but he's been a freelancer since like 1969 and he's still surviving. And I'm, I know he's had his lean years, but he's had some great years too. So um, he taught me about uh, respecting financial management and um, looking, planning ahead and, um, and what a story idea is and what would work for the Griffith Review but might not work for uh, the Sunday Telegraph. So that's been a very long mentorship over you know, more than 20 years. Right. How, how did you acquire those mentors? Did you ask them outright or did they approach you? Well, I first met Morehouse because I was assigned as a journalist to interview him for a new book. And we ended up drinking whiskey into the evening and um, struck up a friendship. So it just simply went from there. And the other one? Georgia. Yeah. Um, I met her, by chance, I met her when I was living on the Gold Coast working as a cadet journalist. And um, there was a, um, a writer's group on the Gold Coast which I went to and she was there and she was the only person with a published book behind her. So we started chatting and then she said, come over for dinner one night and, um, you know, she taught me an enormous amount. You had a similar experience, Andrew, didn't you? You sort of, your mentor found you. Yeah, which is why giving advice about mentorships is kind of hard because I didn't know or understand the value of a mentor until I had one and I wasn't seeking one. He came to me. So he helped the first couple of years of my career and still is helping. So he's been a business mentor to me in the sense of helping me achieve consistency across freelancing as a business. But a few years after that, about four years ago now, I approached uh, a staff writer at the Weekend Australian magazine to be my writing mentor. His name's Richard Gilliatt. And with him, um, what I do is, still do is, if I've got a big feature that I'm unsure about, I write the draft and send it to him for feedback before it gets to the editor so he can provide advice on structure and tone and content and all that stuff, which I may have missed or likely have missed because when you're so immersed in a feature, it's very easy to forget what's important. So to have that objective voice that can come in and tell you what works and what doesn't before I get to the editor. I actually think I had him read some of my stuff before it came to you at QE Kend, potentially. He helped enormously. Oh, they were very polished. (laughs) (laughs) Tiana? I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm really envious of you both because I'd love to, to have had a, a, a mentor with my writing and, and I never have and I think it'd be, it'd be wonderful. But something I really enjoy is I actually um, am a part of the mentor program at Queensland Writers' Centre and I work with emerging writers um, on memoir. So going back to my book writing roots and, and something I always get, I think, just as much out of that experience every time I have the meeting from the participants as I do actually than they probably get from me. And it's the same at QUT. I teach first year um, students in the creative industries faculty at QUT, predominantly uh, journalism and media and comms. And the thing that I like about that is even though I, I am mentoring some of them and I work with them individually, on the other hand, I mean, because they're they're so young and enthusiastic and they might not have a lot of experience, but that energy and enthusiasm and, and their ideas, I get so much out of 
that experience of teaching and mentoring them that I think I'm getting the better deal, to be honest. It's, it's great and I love it. What about profile? What about, you know, sort of as that element of your business? How important is that and how do you do it? What are your key things? That's, that's been really important um, to me with my business model, particularly since um, it's a combination of the business model I have, which is the freelance journalism, which is what I do predominantly, but then the, the teaching and the emceeing and the speaking and that sort of thing, which is the other part of the business model. And so for me, that profile is, is absolutely critical. Um, I do a lot on uh, social media, which is something I really uh, enjoy, and that sort of, I guess, happened you know, in the last five years or so when social media has really taken off. Um, I will do things for free, but it has to be, it's always a, a very considered process as to whether I'm going to do anything for free. And I do think for me, it has to be a, a you know, sometimes they say, oh, write for us for nothing and build your exposure. You know, I'm, I'm not interested in doing that. But to give an example of, of something that, that's worked really well for me is um, I had for many years a week, was doing a weekly travel segment on ABC um, with different announcers at different times. And that worked really well for me both from the point of view that it honed my public speaking skills and I was doing live radio and taking talk back, so that's always super exciting. Um, but then also I would get cold calls out of the blue from people saying, oh, I heard you and do you want to come and MC this conference or would you like to do this? And, and so that's worked really well for me. So putting my name out there has been really, really important um, and I, I need to keep doing that to be successful, I think. And it's becoming even more important. So Qantas Travel Insider, who I write for, when they first started that and they were asking, uh, they were saying, we're on the lookout for contributors, we're relaunching the online magazine. Um, and they were saying, you know, we need your social media following. Um, and they actually chose contributors, A, based on their ability to write, but B, if they were into social media and could amplify the content. Um, so it's actually impacting uh, the ability to be commissioned as well now. So it's something else. It's another marketing tool you have, or another like the HTML. It's another thing that you yeah, can bring, that's, bring to that's the table. Add, adding value, I guess. It's yeah. all about adding value when you're a freelancer, because you've got to hopefully be the one that they pick um, over someone else. I guess, as, as Matt was saying, you know, you've it's got to be got to be right. Yeah, Andrew, um, just we'll go to questions yeah, in a having second. a profile these days essentially just means ranking really well on Google. So if you Google my name, I rank highly across a range of things. Like I've got a standalone website at myname.com, which is my entire professional portfolio going back years and years. I've got a standalone website for my book and my podcast. So all these things point to me as being um, professional across a few different areas. And that's the advice I would give to anyone here. If you're, whether you're just starting out as a freelancer or you've been doing it for some time, register your name.com as a domain and just keep it updated with your most recent published work because it shows that you're serious about this as a career. It's not just a lark for you. It's, it's everything yeah. to you. And if you keep a strong web presence so that if you contact an editor out of the blue and they're like, who the fuck is this person? They Google you and you come up really highly and you've got a lot of links and um, strong content around your name. That's crucial now yeah, more Matt, than ever. Yeah, that's something you've seen? Is there... Yes, it is, but I think... Um we tend to lose sight of the fact that the that a profile only comes on the back of the work. The work has to be there first. Mm. So my advice would be to um, initially forget about the profile and forget about wasting hours per week on social media. Concentrate on the work and get it right and the rest will follow. Great. 
Thank you all. Um, let's take, throw it open to questions. Uh, is, is there somebody who would like to have something they'd like to ask the panel? Sorry. Have you ever been asked by an editor to actually, you've pitched to them and then they've actually said, well, write the story and then we'll decide? Uh, and, and what would you say in that situation? I guess what I'm asking is how much time you invest uh, in a job or a particular story before you know you, you're going to get some kind of income from it? Yeah, it's a tough question, especially early in your career. So that's called writing on spec, where they're, they're unsure about whether you can deliver. So they might ask you to write the story in full before assigning it. And it's a dangerous place to be in because if they say no, you've invested a lot of time and energy and perhaps money into pursuing a story which may not end up being published. So you may be able to sell it elsewhere, but yeah, it's a tough one. So I did that a little bit early in my career, but nowadays it's certainly pitch. Like the idea is the, the king. The idea is what you sell before you um, write anything. It was a lesson I learned the hard way very early in my career that I had an editor. I sent through pictures and I had, had an editor say to me, oh, I'll take a look at these two. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, super fantastic. And I was really excited thinking that, oh, well, they're going to run. And they never did. Oh, one of them did, the other didn't. And um, the editor left and that was the end of that. So it's sort of, it's a, you know, can be on, on spec. But now I'm probably pretty similar to Andrew that I won't, I've, I won't write on spec. Um, it needs to be a story that's going to run for me to actually to write it, um, unless it's a publication I really, really want to write for and I'm willing to do it sort of as a once-off. Does that answer your question? Like, it's very tough early in your career when you are an unknown quantity where an editor doesn't know whether they want to take a chance on you or take a risk with you. You have to take it case by case. Yeah. Although sometimes you have to take one step back to make two forward. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, it is a gamble. Um, you know, I remember early in my career working for um, three years in a row during my Christmas holidays for the Gold Coast Bulletin for nothing. And that was only so that at the end of my time I could say, well, remember me when a job comes up. And that's how I got my first mm. job. So you're investing all the time as well, you know and hoping ultimately it will pay dividends. Don't be shy, we're all terribly nice, I promise. <laughs> uh, speaking of gamble, um, have, you, have all three of you had the situation where you've done the pitch, been blown off and said, no, we're not interested, and then you've seen your story appear in that organisation? I'm assuming there's not a fucking thing you can do about it, but you know, does it sort of kind of, do you tend to keep a bit of the stuff back for that reason, even when you pitch? Well, it's a great question. Uh, and um, I remember being asked to audition f as a reporter for a, years ago for a, a new 60-minute style program to go on Channel 10. And they said, bring in a dozen ideas, which I did. Over the next 18 months, about seven of them went to air. Um, so say they invited me and, and another 10 people with 12 ideas each. That's 120 ideas for this program that they don't have to think about. Mm. And that's what happened. So, um, and uh, in the end I decided I wasn't interested anyway, but they, they, they were very interested in those ideas. <laughs> <laughs> it happens, but it's pretty rare, I would think. And rather than taking it personally, I think it may also be a case of pure coincidence. Like, 
really, there are only so many ideas in the world, especially if you're based in Brisbane and pitching to a particular publication. Like, there's a lot of ideas out there, but certain people think in similar ways, and there are patterns that emerge. So, if it happens, it has happened to me, and it's best to just shrug it off and move on rather than getting pissed off because it's not going to achieve much. Yeah, I'd probably second Andrew on that. Actually, it's um similar like I mean it, it'd be very easy for me to sort of see a story that I mean with travel it's the same thing um you know I, it's just coincidence you know and you can make a, a decision not to I think the thing that really annoys me um and I've got a sort of three strikes you're out policy so if, with a this happened to me recently three times in a row an editor asked me for I keep my pictures to 50 words I have a strict 50 word uh, pitch rule to make it really succinct and and catchy but then she asked me for more information. Can you expand on this? If you were going to do this story, what would you do? So you do like a, you know, a, quite a detailed, you know, on what would be included and what you talk about and this sort of thing, especially if it's for a feature. It takes you about a half a day to put that together. Um, three times in a row now she's done that and hasn't actually taken it nor gotten back to me to tell me that I could pitch it elsewhere despite following up and yet that's, that, that really bugs me. I think I, I'm more upset about that than maybe seeing my idea somewhere else, because it's taken a lot of time for me to do that. But that decision to walk away, it's, it's prioritising your time and mm. your emotional energy over being desperate, like, I really need work from them. It's saying, you know what, I don't want to work for you because you're not pleasant to work with. So that's a, a good decision. I admire mm. Plus, it also goes into your spreadsheet model as well, doesn't it? Is, it? is this a good use of my time? Is this a productive, efficient use of my time? Or mm. do I write this off as a, an outlet? Mm. Any other questions? Yep. Um, I guess further to that question, have you had to get more creative with your pitching when everything is so Googleable? when um, BuzzFeed will pick up on that, you know, 13 most romantic islands for Valentine's Day, when so much can be recreated just from a newsroom rather than going out there and finding the story? Yeah, for me, I think as a freelancer, um, for me, in my industry, I'm not sure if, if other people would, would agree, but for me as a freelancer, it has to be something that a staff writer either cannot or will not write. So um, for me as a, as a travel journalist, I'm, I'm not so much compete. I am competing with other freelancers, but I'm also competing you know, with staff writers as well. So, it's a, yeah, I guess it's about coming up with something interesting and a really sort of cool angle that someone else might not have thought of before. Um, and that's generally the things that get picked up. You know, if I was going to um, pitch a story like, um, you know, Guide to Rome, no-one's probably ever going to pick that up because it's just, you know, as you said, exactly same old, same old. You can get it off Google. But so it's got to be something different. Yeah, that's kind of... For me, the point of freelance journalism is to do things that no one else is doing. So if you see an idea of yours appear somewhere else, you should cross that off your list because someone else is thinking that way. Your point of difference should be to come up with ideas that no one else is. And your flexibility as a freelancer means that you should be able to go out there if it's a travel story or you have to go outside of the newsroom to do it or away from the computer, away from Google. Like That's a, a, a beauty of the job. You can go places and then report back to the for the average reader. Yeah, I mean, I remember editing and, and pitches coming in and, and quite often um, I'd see a story pitch and I'd go, why didn't we think of that? You know, it's, that's so obvious, it's right in front of us and we've been too busy doing everything else to actually see the bleeding obvious in front of us. So, 
Uh, that happened regularly. Yeah, I see that too. And, and, and uh, you know, you just see it when you see stories. You think, oh, that's genius. It's right, been right there in front of us all, but it's a microcosm or it's a... Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Any other questions? Oh. I just had one question, because people are talking about pitching stories a lot, but have you got any examples where you've pitched... It's more than just a story. It's actually a fundamental change in how they would present something. So you're actually challenging them to present stories in a different way. So it's, it's a story, but it's also a mechanism for telling a story. Do you mean to a, a, a particular outlet? In a yeah, to an outlet, or? particularly. So more like what Noel was talking about, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean... So you, entrepreneurial... Yeah, I mean, how much do you consider the logistics behind a story? Because, you know, a, a particular um, pitch might not be able to be told within... You know, are you trying to push the boundaries of the stories they could tell? Yeah, and I mean, for me, um, I haven't done it yet. And part of that reason is the fact that, I mean, you know, I'd say for about three or four years now, you know, there's been a lot of talk about video, in, tra in travel, videos, videos, the next big, big thing. And, and in other, um, you know, in hard news, in other sort of avenues as well. Um, but as a freelance, that's not very good because you weren't getting paid for it. So you'd be expected you know, put together a package, but you were just not getting paid a lot more for it. To add in uh, video with yeah, the package. Yeah, to provide video, because a lot of the time we provide photos already, but then they're sort of all provide video, but there's not a lot of extra money for that. Um, however, the editors uh, I interviewed recently for my PhD, all of them said, confirmed that video was their next big, big thing when I asked them what's your next big thing, and that they were willing to pay for it. So that really got my attention. So in answer to your question, I haven't done it yet, but I may well be doing it in the future. It'll be your next H HTML thing. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> my next new techie thing I have to learn how to do. My answer is no, and that's because most of what I'm pitching, or majority of what I'm pitching, is magazine feature stories, either for magazines or for the web. And a magazine like QEKEN, for example, which Matt writes for and which I freelance for, they've just gone through a major redesign where they now know how the, mag how the stories are going to sit in the magazine alongside photos. So they're, they're not going to break that model for years. Like, it's, it's kind of set in stone. It doesn't make sense for me to come in with new ideas and try and influence that because my job as a freelancer is just to provide awesome story ideas. Yep. Um, I think we're just sort of, sort of for time. Last one. <clears throat> Um, I was just wondering, if you wanted to pitch a story to a particular magazine, um, would you email the editor and pitch your idea? Like, what's the process to pitch it? Yes. Editor. Find their email address through your ingenuity and email them directly, introducing yourself succinctly, linking to your .com online portfolio, which I mentioned before, and then say, here's my idea. What do you think? Yeah. I always... Well, well, I do. Um, for me, that works really well, and I generally in, um, include. I only do a maximum of five, so it's enough that you know. If I've finally got the editor's attention, I would like them to read more than one. I mean, I try to make them all a bit different and try to make sure they're targeted. Um, and the other thing I always do as well is is thank them for taking the time to to. Um, to, to look at them and that I appreciate them uh, taking the time to review them. And I've actually had an editor get back to me pretty much immediately, which doesn't happen that often, to say, A, yes, I'll take a couple of them, and B, you're the, pretty much the only freelancer who's ever thanked me for looking at the story pictures. So, I mean, 
that might help as well. It, any little thing that helps is always good. Matt, as an editor, I mean, it's a pretty heavy load coming through on that email, isn't it? So following up is, is, it is key and, and sort of keeping going as well. Oh, absolutely. And, um, but, you know, the, as I was mentioning before, the magazine is just a constant monster. And, you know, when a, sto a story will fall through and then you, you'll remember, you go, oh, hang, hang on a sec, that pitch that I read yesterday, uh, if we could get that together quickly, we could fill that hole for the next issue. So it all, it all works, ultimately works um, in, in a sort of weird rhythm. But um, the thing too with a, with a, a pitch from, a, from an unknown is that it's, it's like when Andrew started pitching for Q Weekend, I mean, he, I had read some of his work, so I, at least I had an idea that A, he could write, which is a good start. But it's difficult when you, when you write at the starting gate. So, and what I did, and it's a sort of time-worn thing, is that it, and it's like a pebble in a pond where, if you live in Brisbane, then you start in, around your immediate village to see if there's anywhere where you can publish your work. And then that'll get bigger, and it'll get bigger until you cover the city. So uh, it, it is small steps. There's no way around that. Um, but they're, they're the necessary steps to, on, on this long journey if you're passionate about it. And above all, it's about reading too. So reading the local magazine, like West End Magazine here, for example. I don't know if they pay, but they put out a publication. They have an online presence. So if you're reading widely, seeing what kind of stories are being commissioned and taking notes and marking up things you like. Oh, and the other thing I want to mention before we finish is if you read something you like, take the time to email the writer because I've been doing that pretty much my whole career and the strike rate for getting a response is amazingly high, partially, I think, because writing is a very solitary activity and often if you write a story, you file it to an editor, there might be some back and forth, but then it goes out into the world and often it's hard to tell whether it's had any impact on the average reader. So I've found that writers really like hearing from other writers, telling them why they liked particular pieces, and from that kind of um, strategy, I suppose. It's not, I'm not looking for anything in particular. I just want to say, writer to writer, thanks. That was a really awesome read. Great it's got, work. got nothing to do with ego. <laughs> no, well, it's um, connecting, isn't it? And it is solitary. It's, and I guess... It's a community. Just following on from what Matt said about sort of that, that long journey and, and, you know, small steps and start small and start building and start writing. I mean, that is true, but the small steps actually do start to come one after the other. And before you know it, if you, if you do do that, you'll find all of a sudden that you're writing really quite regularly and it'll probably just sneak up on you um, after a lot of hard work, but it does. And, um, you know, you'll find all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm actually, I'm doing okay. It's fantastic. Thank you so much. It, we could go on and on, and I know that it's been incredibly interesting. Um, but I feel the clock breathing down our neck. Um, Matt, you are about to publish your third book. Congratulations, 23rd of September. Yes, thank you. Yeah. So you'll be doing, no doubt you'll be around talking as well. There'll be an oh, opportunity God, yeah. Yeah. for people I'm, to I'm hear more. I'm sick of the sound of my own voice already, and it hasn't started yet. <laughs> Good luck. I bet it's you. you know a fantastic feeling to be here. It's been a long journey, um, Andrew. You you've, you're embarking, so you're at the other end of the process now on your next book. Yeah, if all goes well, it'll be out about this time next year through University of Queensland Press. Uh, but in the meantime, if you're interested in hearing writers talk, my podcast is called Penmanship. You can listen to my interview with Matthew Condon if you like what he heard today, or other writers like Trent Dalton coming up on the panel next, or John Birmingham later today. So penmanshippodcast.com. 
And Tiana, you're, you know, off for hard work, two weeks cruising around the Mediterranean and other amazing places. We'll be thinking of you. Yeah, I know. It's on assignment. <laughs> it's on assignment for Cruise Critic. I promise you, I am, I am working. It is work. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's going to be a pretty good day at the office. <laughs> Thank you all. Thanks so much. Thanks, and join me in thanking our panel. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley events and news.